electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. And right now on Last Call, the toll of Maui's Inferno's new estimates revealing the unprecedented impact of the still ongoing catastrophe. No dice, the luck running out for shares of Penn Entertainment even after a landmark deal with ESPN. A no good, very bad week for many SPACs. And that's saying something. Herb Greenberg is here to help you sort through the mess. Working from home may not be the drag on business that many think. We have got some surprising findings on the topic, plus the future pulling up to a doorstep near you. Maybe San Francisco giving the green light to self-driving taxis. Will your town be next? And an absolutely wild and crazy Tesla story that you have got to hear. It involves CNBC and Ukraine. I mean, you got to hear this story, and it's coming up and much more. So belly up or buckle up, because last call is up right now. All right, good evening here, good afternoon out west. And we can, as you can see for the animation, begin tonight with a developing story out of a federal courthouse in lower Manhattan. Sam Bankman-Fried is heading to jail after a judge revoked the disgraced FTX founder's bail over alleged witness tampering. Here's a video of him entering the courthouse earlier today. This comes ahead of his fraud trial, which is set to begin in October. Kate Rooney following the story since the beginning, really, and joining us now live with more. Kate. Hey there, Brian. So Sam Bankman-Fried's bail is being revoked. He's being remanded to jail in the New York area until his trial starts in October. The judge today saying that Sam really pushed the envelope when it came to his bail conditions. He said, quote, my conclusion is that there is probable cause to believe that the defendant tried to tamper with witnesses at least twice. DOJ prosecutors had accused him of intimidating witnesses through his hundreds of conversations with the media. The latest example, Bankman-Fried had leaked a series of documents to The New York Times about a key witness, Caroline Ellison. She's the former CEO of the hedge fund Alameda, which was founded by Bankman-Fried. She's already pleaded guilty to multiple counts of fraud and is Bankman-Fried's former girlfriend. Bankman-Fried's legal team had argued that he was exercising his First Amendment rights by talking to the press. And they say that the discovery process could be hindered if he doesn't have access to the Internet. A source telling CNBC that Bankman-Fried going to be held at the Manhattan Detention Center, MDC, but he may be transferred to Putnam, where he would have more internet access and help with discovery there. A judge had issued a warning back in July. Bankman-Fried had his internet access restricted at that point, and he wasn't able to use a smartphone. The FTX founder had been on house arrest as part of the $250 million bail package. We had a producer there today. Don Gill was inside the courtroom. She said it was an emotional scene for Bankman-Fried's parents who were there, His mother, she said, sat with her head buried in her hands. He was handcuffed, taken to the back of the courthouse before going to that correctional facility, a scrum there, but really an emotional day for the parents there, as she described it. And the judge denied Bankman-Fried's immediate request for an appeal today. He is expected to stay in custody 
until that trial kicks off October 2nd, Brian. Okay, Rooney, Kate, thank you very much. All right, for reaction, let us bring in civil rights attorney and former prosecutor David Henderson and trustless media founder and host of Coinage, Zach Guzman. He was the last reporter to interview Bankman Freed before a judge put a gag order on him just a couple of weeks ago. And Alameda Ventures hedge fund that Kate talked about was one of the investors in trustless media almost a year before FTX's collapse. Zap, you were also, as I understand it, like our producer Don, you were in the courtroom. Take us a little more inside there. What was the scene? Yeah, I just got back actually a little bit ago, uh, back in Brooklyn now, Brian, but it, it was a dark scene. I mean, everyone was ushered out of there right before the handcuffs went off, uh, went on to Sam Bankman Freed. I actually sat behind his mother and father throughout that hearing. Uh, and she was, as your producer noted, uh, reacting quite emotionally throughout the whole uh, ordeal and uh, actually walked towards Sam right before the handcuffs went off and a marshal had to tell her to to step back. So it, it was a pretty roller coaster ride in the courtroom. And, and really, from the very beginning, Judge Kaplan wasn't having much with any of the defense that Sam's team was presenting, almost from the very beginning, saying that from the get-go, there was probable cause to expect uh, that Sam, through these leaks through the New York Times, uh, had been trying and attempting to tamper witnesses and influence whatever they might bring up at trial. Yeah, David, former prosecutor, can you give us a little insight into what is happening to Bankman Freed now? Do you, we don't know exactly where is he in jail now. Uh, I don't know what you might know about this Manhattan de- detention center. Can you tell us if you do a little bit about it, the conditions, et cetera? And also, is that the place where Epstein was? Absolutely, Brian. I can't tell you much about that specific facility in Manhattan, but I can tell you this. He's behind bars and he's going to stay behind bars. They may transfer him to one different facility or another because typically sometimes the courthouses will have specific facilities where they house people prior to their trials. Depending on the needs of the facility, they may have to move him to a, diff- to a different place. The bottom line here is that whenever you're out on bail, you basically have a contract with the judge to not be behind bars until your case goes to trial and the judge is taking your physical body as collateral. So if you step off of the line and they determine that you have, it is not at all uncommon to see them revoke someone. And the key words the judge here were, he stepped up to the line over and over. They already know they had to extradite you from the Bahamas. You've come before the judge more than once with prosecutors saying you need to be revoked. Uh-huh. It was a matter of time before this happened. Yeah, I mean, listen, Kate, you've met him. I mean, he's obviously an, he's obviously an intelligent guy from just a pure intellect perspective. But to David's point, to do what he was doing, to leak email love letters or whatever they were about his former girlfriend to the New York Times, you, you've got to, I'm sure there are many questions tonight about what, what exactly the heck he was trying to accomplish. So that really was the draw for a lot of investors that saw Sam Bankman fried as what they described at the time as this genius, really. They thought that he was the smartest guy in the room. So it's hard now for anyone to believe that when he claims ignorance or claims that he didn't know that a lot of this stuff was going on at FTX. And that whole persona that he built up and the idea that he is an intelligent guy, graduated from MIT, you've got to think that there is some sort of strategy behind what he's doing when he's out on bail, not to mention both of his parents are legal professors or were at the, uh, in their, their careers. They, they have their legal scholars. So the question of whether or not they've been in some way coaching him up, telling him yeah. you know, this is a good idea, or if they've got no clue that this is going on and it's his own attempt to, like they have said, to try to really take the case into the court of public opinion yeah. and try to, to paint 
Carolyn Ellison in a certain way, but it does seem quite strategic and uh, not, it clearly hasn't paid off here, at least uh, when it comes to the bail conditions. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've got to imagine, and we'll get to this in a second, that he was getting legal advice from his folks. His parents are extremely well-connected as well. You just because just you went to MIT, I guess, does it, you, may, you may be book smart, but clearly, Zach, there, there was something there missing. There's other people that have gone to MIT whose life turned out in very different ways. Some of them moved to cabins with no running water in, in Montana. Um, I'm going to ask you this, Zach. Uh, what can you tell us about it? I know you know him. Mm-hmm. What is yeah, he, no, what I mean, is he I was, actually like? Yeah, no, I've, I've known Sam. I, I've interviewed him a number of times. And, and like you said, I was, I was out there just a few weeks ago at his home. His mom actually came in while we were discussing a potential interview uh, for coinage. And, you know, again, we've been rolling out. He essentially laid out his defense for what is to come at trial and interestingly, I mean, in the hearing today, I was kind of surprised that his defense didn't talk about the fact that I was there at his house and he did not provide to us any documents from Caroline Ellison's diary. But I mean, he as a character, Brian, as you speak to you, I mean, everyone does present this idea that he is a genius, that he couldn't make any mistakes. Clearly, obviously, if that were true, FTX would still be running today. But when you dig into his defense and the details there, I think there are elements that do raise questions. And we've been trying to answer them Again, with where we've been taking his defense now, we put it in front of Bernie Madoff's former prosecutor, Mark Litt, uh, and he was bringing a lot of the same points that Kate just mentioned there, that, you know, look, I'm not sure if an idiot defense is going to work in the yeah. same way that old cases ever tried, but specifically with Sam, I think, you know, there's more to come here, and we will be rolling that out uh, for our audience at Coinage, but you're right, Brian, I mean, uh, clearly it's going to be a tough thing to defend, and as Kate mentioned, hasn't worked uh, yeah. exactly as planned thus far. And David, I, I, I do not, I have a law degree, but I do not practice, I've never practiced, I wanna make that clear, so I know just enough to be really, really dangerous. Um, is this gonna be the bad businessman defense? Is this gonna be just like, oh, I'm, a, I'm an MIT genius, but I just don't know how to run a business. I'm not a crook, I'm just a bad business. Because this has actually worked for some people in the past. If you were defending Sam Bankman-Fried, given everything we know, how would you do it? That's a good question, Brian, because the evidence here is damning. And really what you've got to do, I think, when the evidence is this damning, is you've got to get up on the stand. You've got to take some degree of accountability and hope that the jury will reward you for doing so. You also have to attack the people who've made deals to testify on behalf of the state, like, for example, Miss Ellison, but who still were part of the plot to defraud people. Now, that's a, that's a tight rope to walk. And what we're seeing now is we live in an era where lawyers never really go to trial anymore. And if you look at the last few high-profile trials, one of the things that is clear is that as a result of that, People don't know how to prepare individuals to take the stand. I've seen more than one trial where the person taking the stand should have led to an acquittal or at the very least a hung jury, and it didn't. It's very difficult for me to say that specifically with regard to Mr. Sam Bakeman-Fried without being able to talk to him directly, yeah. but that would be my take. Take some responsibility, hoping the jury will reward you for it on the back end. And to your point, David, he was out on bail. It was a, it was a fine line he had to walk, and he just kept crossing it. He either didn't know or didn't care. Listen, he could be a genius he still did it. By the way, you don't have to be smart. I mean, Forrest Gump built a multi-billion dollar canned shrimp empire. You know, so it's a, brains aren't everything. Kate, David, Zach, appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right. So on a more serious note, be sure to tune in on Monday for a, hopefully a newsmaking interview. We're going to sit down. We're going to Florida tomorrow. Going to sit down with Florida Governor and GOP presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis. We will be in Florida for the interview. Hit on all kinds of topics that are critical to our CNBC audience. All of you watching and listening right now. Inflation, taxes, the economy, 
corporate America, labor, immigration, and much, much more. A CNBC interview from Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis on Monday. Do not miss that. All right, in the meantime, here's what happened to your money today and this week. Now, for the week, well, today, look at this. This week, we saw the Dow up six-tenths of 1%. NASDAQ fell nearly 2% of it, kind of an endemic of how today went as well. The biggest winner of the week was a company we talked about earlier this week, Eli Lilly, really the new king of pharma, just printing money on weight loss and diabetes treatments. The big decliner, IFF, International Flavors and Fragrances, losing one-fifth of its value since Monday. They cut their sales outlook, and they got a bunch of downgrades and price target cuts all on Wall Street. All right. Up next here on Last Call, the spiraling toll of Maui's catastrophic wildfires. Plus, a harsh hit for AMC shareholders sending that stock down with breaking developments on AMC next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. All right, time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories that you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. Shares of AMC Entertainment diving after hours on news of its share restructuring plan getting approved by a court. The controversial stock conversion plan was revised after it was rejected earlier by a court. Conversion would dilute current shares, so investors are not happy. Clearly, that stock is down 24% right now. All right, next up, more fallout at Fox. The company's chief legal officer and its architect of its defamation defense against Dominion voting is leaving. Viet Dinh is departing after being with the company for a long time. Fox settled its lawsuit with Dominion Voting with a $787 million payout. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that his strong standing at the company was weakened after that settlement. In the meantime, the death toll keeps rising in Hawaii as the devastation for the wildfires becoming clearer. Flames have killed at least 59 people. Officials say that number is likely to rise. Governor says he believes 1,000 people are still missing. Hawaii's governor says the wildfires will likely be the largest natural disaster in the state's history. Experts say the damage and economic impact from the flames are in the billions of dollars. Contessa Brewer is here now with the details. Contessa. Yeah, so Brian, authorities have begun to allow residents back into Lahaina to assess the damage, but they have been warned to brace for the worst. CoreLogic estimates in three of the four wildfire zones on Maui, there are more than 3,000 homes with a reconstruction value of $1.3 billion. Now, not all those homes will have been destroyed or even damaged, but that figure also does not include commercial structures, restaurants, hotels, offices, churches, museum. We know that those have burned in what once was the royal capital of Hawaii, Lahaina. Mick Fleetwood of Fleetwood Mac lives on Maui and owns a destination restaurant in Lahaina. It is literally gone. If, if it, it's it's very disturbing. Uh, there are pictures, you know, the before and after, and we all have our own stories. Mine, obviously, is is steeped in not only the town, but what happened over the last you know ten years or so of of running this crazy restaurant in the middle of of Lahaina, and all the lovely things that happened. 
Fleetwood is already vowing to rebuild. He says his team is all accounted for, though many are now homeless. Oprah Winfrey has a home on Maui. Her team says that she went to a shelter and asked what was most needed and then went to Walmart and Costco to buy those items. Home Depot says its store is helping source supplies like water, ice, coolers, tents, desperately needed as shelters. It's going to be very challenging, um, you know, and we and we have clients that are displaced and we're trying to help them get hotel rooms. Most of the hotels are full. Um, we're looking at, you know, my, my office has a shower. We're looking up, set up, sending up cots in here. State Farm is the biggest home insurer in Hawaii, providing more than a third of the policies. It had two agents in Lahaina. Both of their offices, I'm told, burned down. One also lost his home. Even so, and in spite of power and communications issues, State Farm is already processing hundreds of wildfire claims. But listen, what's coming in for claims, 20% of those, Brian, are wind damage. Remember, it was wind from Hurricane Dora that really fueled those flames and sent them through all of this island and across town uh, and sent them burning there. So it could be weeks before we get a, a damage estimate. In terms of the search, this is really, uh, it's hard to talk about if the governor thinks a thousand people are missing. Mm. They have been unable to go into the burned billing, buildings because of the toxic situation there. Apparently they needed to wait for FEMA crews who are equipped for the hazardous situation so that they could go in and, and look for victims. The scenes are just abs gutting so hard to see. Um, and to your point, so much still left to, to know, right? Yeah, and, and, and while they try to facilitate supply chains so that they can get in what's needed, and if you think about it, this is why the governor has said to tourists, even if you have plans to come here, don't come because we need the hotel space. They need the, the food, the water, the gasoline. They need all of those resources for the response. I would imagine the same thing, and you know, you, you showed Oprah, and good for her for doing what she was doing there, and, and uh, Oprah's most valuable asset probably right now would be her plane. Right, to be able to ferry in the supplies that they're going to need to your point. They're going to just need a lot of stuff. And if you know Hawaii, I'm sure you've been there. I have. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a long way from anything. And, and logistics are extremely difficult. And so we heard from FedEx that they are already start, starting to put in contingency plans. Marriott said that three of its hotels over on that west side, west side of the island don't have power. And so they have actually removed all the guests and helped them get back to where they're going. They needed to clear it out. It's going to be the situation where the logistics have to go in to respond is enormous. Yeah. And, and just in the time we were talking, uh, got an update from the Maui County government just seconds ago that the, the, the fatality toll is now 67. So... Um, just an awful, awful situation. All right. Up next, uh, a Tesla story so strange and bizarre, you're going to have to hear this. It involves CNBC and Ukraine. Also Drake, apparently. Plus, your luck can change just like that. How Penn Entertainment is learning the lesson the hard way after a blockbuster deal with ESPN. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back. Now we've got a story that is almost too crazy to believe, but it's true. Okay, back in December, our CNBC colleagues, actually the head of digital here, Jay Yarrow, wrecked his Tesla, ended up totaling the vehicle. He was unharmed, as I understand it. Now, the car, you can see it there, was sent to a junkyard in New Jersey, and Jay figured his trusty Tesla would, you know, just go to that great scrapyard in the sky. But oh no, listen to this. This week, Jay heard from his car again. That's right. He got a notice on his phone that his Tesla was suddenly back online. Tesla lets you see where the car is, kind of like the Find My iPhone feature. So, curious, he, he looked, and he saw that his Tesla was now in Ukraine. Yes, Ukraine, because, of course, Ukraine. Not only that, but whomever now has the car was also listening to Drake on Jay's still-logged-in Spotify account. It's a bonkers story. But it's also an important lesson because it's possible the new car owners may have access to things like Jay's contact list or other personal information stored in the car's computer. In other words, the car itself may actually be a security risk. Let's talk now more about it. Joining us is now CNBC.com tech reporter who broke the story all the way from Jay Yarrow's mouth, Laura Kalodny, an autom- automotive cybersecurity veteran and the founder of Right Hook, Warren Honor, Laura, I'd say, listen, this is our colleague, Jay. We can laugh about it because he's fine. Uh, but this is, an, this is an insane story. Do we have any idea how the car ended up in Ukraine in the first place? So when a car is totaled and it goes to a salvage yard like that, uh, in other countries, the car might have more value than it would here. So you'll encounter these uh, teams that, like, buy the wreck and then rehabilitate the car or maybe just the car computer and use it overseas. Yeah, and there's gotta be, Warren, there's gotta be a lesson here. And, and we're kind of making light of it, but you know, I get into rental cars. I'm sure we've all done this and you, and you attach your phone and there's like eight previous renters had just left their stuff stored in the computer. You know, I always try to delete the connection if I have one on Bluetooth. What's the security risk and what's the security lesson? So the risk is, as you've alluded to, leaving breadcrumbs of your personal life in that rental car. And I think the minimal data sharing required to get done what you want to do is the right approach. So when you pair your phone with a rental car, it's important as those screens pop up and it asks you, do you want to sync your favorites? Do you want to sync your contacts? Do you want to sync locations? No. Say no to everything. Yeah. Say no to everything. What? what by the way, hopefully Jay's watching. What is his risk? Warren, is there anything he can do now? You know, I don't know what all applications he had signed in. Um, so, I mean, there could be individual risks with those applications. And if that's the case, he really needs to reach out to the application or service provider. So, I mean, Spotify's, you know, his worst case is 
discovered Weekly is going to be messed up. But if he had some other important applications in there, like home automation, this person could sign into and open a smart garage door from Ukraine or unlock the front door of the house. It all depends on what all was connected to the car at the time. It's like somebody just playing around with the garage door opener in, in, in Ukraine and, and Jay's garage door here in New Jersey is going up and down. Uh, you know, the interesting thing to me, Laura, and this is probably a little bit off topic, is the car was totaled, but yet somebody found enough value in it to send it across the ocean. I find that to be bizarre. It's actually a growing industry uh, with online auctions. This has just become incredibly common. And now four out of five cars that are sold in the U.S. actually have some personal data on them when they're resold, whether it's as a used car, you know, like trade-in or from salvage like this. So dealerships, owners, we all need to be more vigilant. Yeah. And I, I wonder if they fixed it up enough that they're driving it around. Glad Jay's OK. But what a bizarre your car literally. Hello, Jay. I'm alive in Ukraine. It's just unbelievable. Warren, Laura, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Turning now to sports betting, because it was a weird week for many big names. First and foremost, the $2 billion deal between ESPN and Penn Gaming to create the new ESPN bet. And the news got a lot of attention and Penn stock popped. But guess what? Shares of Penn fell today again. They're now below where they were before the deal was announced. So why aren't investors hot on this deal? Joining us now is investor at Pomp Investments, sports business analyst and the host of the Joe Pomp Show podcast, Joe Pompliano. Joe, um, I know you're not a stocks dude, okay? I, I get that, but it's amazing to me. You make a $2 billion deal with Disney, and today and the last couple days, the market has said, you know what? We actually don't care. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. If I had to pick just two words to describe this deal, it would be Hail Mary. It's a Hail Mary for Penn because they just paid over $500 million to acquire Barstool Sports. And their game plan was simple. They thought Barstool Sports audience offered them a strategic advantage by getting customers at a lower cost than their competitors. But we're now three years removed from that deal initially being uh, started or initiated, and they only have 5% of the market. So it's clearly not working. So now they're going to go out and they're going to spend another $2 billion doing a very similar deal, albeit with a larger player like ESPN. But it's also a Hail Mary for ESPN. We all know what's happened in the cable business over the last decade and the pressure that it's put on ESPN's business. So now ESPN, what they didn't do, though, is they sat back and they waited five years when sports betting started getting legalized in the United States. Rather than using their big brand to go develop a market position in a lucrative market, they let FanDuel and DraftKings and competitors like that spend billions of dollars to acquire customers and build brand equity. And now those companies don't need to license the ESPN name. They have their own name. So ESPN is stuck with what we'll call a second-tier operator in the space, and they're getting a fraction of what many people believe they could have been worth in the sports gambling world. And Joe, I don't even know if you're if you're a first tier operator, you're the top tier operator. Nobody seems to be making any money because to your point, you got to spend all that money. Customers will leave one to go to the other one. $25 credit with every $200 deposit. You're literally spending money to get people. And when I go to Vegas and you bet there, I get it. I'm buying drinks. I'm buying food. I have a hotel room. I know how they're making money off me because, you know, I'm winning every time. But other than that, how are these companies going to ever make any money? I 
Yeah, it, it's a complex business model for sure, especially with individual states legalizing it one by one. What these companies are doing is they're rushing in and trying to land grab as many people as possible when the state initially opens up. And they think maybe it takes two, three, or four years for those com- customers to actually turn a profit for the business. And then another state opens, right? And another state opens, and another state opens. So it's super hard to see a profit right now if you're these businesses, because as more states open, your marketing costs continue to rise. And that's yeah. exactly why the, the reason why I think Penn's going to have a really different difficult time with ESPN, with Barstool, with whoever, you have to spend a lot of money to acquire customers right now in this market. Yeah. I mean, listen, with, with, if people aren't familiar, Dave Portnoy, uh, and I met Dave a few times, always been a great guy to me, but he can be a polarizing figure. And basically it looks like Penn was like, you know, there was regulatory stuff and they just kind of had to separate. He's buying back Barstool, which is really at its core, a sports content company. He, he said that, by the way, it's content, content, content. And he's getting it back for a dollar. But this is going to be a hard business still for him to scale, right? As to your point, content's hard and it's also Absolutely. expensive. Absolutely. If you wanted to be an optimist about this whole situation, you could look at wins all over the board, right? If you're Penn, you're getting a second crack at this thing after you did Barstool. If you're ESPN, you're getting some money in the door uh, and you're able to slow the bleeding when it comes to cable subscribers. But unquestionably, the winner of this deal was Dave Portnoy and Barstool. I mean, he sold this business not too long ago for over $500 million. And whether he has non-competes or other covenants that he can't break, he still is getting a business that's very, very, very valuable back for $1. And you can't beat that no and we're going to see what he can do with it now that he is back as he says he's the back he's the pirate in charge once again he's been and by the way to his employees show up early you know what i'm talking about joe pompliano thank you very much thanks brian all right just a big reminder folks kind of a big programming note for monday we're going to sit down with florida governor and gop presidential hopeful ron DeSantis. we're going to be in florida for the interview we're going to hit on all topics critical to you the cnbc audience that's that's the economy that's taxes, that's labor, that's inflation, that's immigration. A CNBC interview from Florida with Governor Ron DeSantis Monday, the whole thing live right here on Last Call. Well, the interview's not live, but you'll see it live. All right, still ahead. Your exclusive insider buying segment is back. The top five companies with the most buying by top executives, and we've got some new names you've never heard of this week. Plus, just when you thought the SPAC downfall couldn't get any uglier, manages to outdo even itself. Herb Greenberg is up with that. All right, happy Friday, and it is because your exclusive insider buying segment is back. Remember, during earnings, there are buying blackouts. We gotta take a few weeks off every quarter, but now we're back. And as always, our data comes with thanks from Verity Data. So here we go, top five, and as always, like the door saying, five to one, we're gonna count you down. Fifth most insider buying, paint company Exalta, with the relatively new CEO buying exactly $1 million worth. By the way, adds to another million dollar buy he made back in March. Next up, Zebra Technologies. It's the Illinois maker of things like barcode scanners. A board member buying 1.01 million worth, his first buy, according to Verity, in over five years. Third most insider buying, clothing and apparel company VF Corp. Brand new CEO buying one and a half million of the stock, which has been crushed, lost half, over half its value in a year. So buying on distinct weakness. VF certainly a name to watch. All right, now to the top two. And this one, the opposite of VF. It's Biohaven. It's a biotech that is up 
big in the past couple of months. And founder and billionaire John Child stepping up with a nearly $2 million buy. By the way, Verity notes, Child has now put over $43 million of his own money into Biohaven. It's the new company, which was spun off after the original sale of the old Biohaven to Pfizer. So he's buying into strength on his old new company. But the biggest insider buy of the week, a $2 million transaction at Cerevel Therapeutics by the CEO. It's his first at the biotech. Cerevel shares, they've been hammered lately. So clearly seeing some value there. By the way, there was also a pretty big buy at Cerevel by another executive. So really two big insider buys here. There you go. Exalta, Zebratech, VF Corp, Biohaven, and Cerevel. Two biotechs topping the list this week. Definitely names to watch. Remember, it's insider buying segment. One you're only going to see here on Last Call or on CNBC Pro. All right. We cover the changing nature of work quite a bit on Last Call. And tonight, a new report from economists at Bank of America suggesting that remote work is actually expanding the labor force. They write, quote, if the post-pandemic work environment has indeed shifted toward greater remote work, and it, it is in the process, the process of pulling workers into the workforce that normally do not participate, then maybe we are not overly optimistic in our view that the wage and price inflation can gradually diminish even as activity and labor markets stay healthy. If you understood that word salad, you're smarter than I am, okay? You're like Bankman-Fried type smart. Here's the bottom line. They're saying is that remote work enables people who may not be able to work if they actually had to go into an office. Let's talk about it now. Alan Garino, he is the vice chairman of, I don't know, how do you describe Cordfrey? Jobs placement company, executive search, all things jobs. All things jobs and all things talent. Talent, yeah. talent solutions. So they wrote it like a typical Wall Street economist. But the, 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 the nugget out of that is that if you, you've got young children at home, right, and childcare is so expensive, or you're disabled, there's ways that remote work can benefit the workforce. No question about it. And, and not only that, Brian, before the pandemic, if there's one silver lining with something as horrible as COVID, it is this remote work phenomenon. We were operating at 7,000 RPM in terms of the way people had to work. Starting with the introduction of the iPhone, email, text, work was 24-7. Life happened on the way to work mm. and the way back from work. So I predict that it was going to break anyway. COVID sent everyone home, gave people permission to say, wait a second, I might not have to do it the old way. And now businesses are wrestling with what is the new way? By the way, people say, let's return to work. No, people have been working. It's the question is, where do I return to a workplace? Is it home? Well, is it's, it an it's office? It's evolving, too. And I, I mean, anecdotally, I don't know where you live. I live in New Jersey. When I drive home tonight, I will, my, I will get home quicker tonight than Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday. Totally. Because there's so many more people on the road Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So I'm thinking, OK, a lot of people are getting I think they're able to work from home Mondays and Fridays. But there's companies saying you got to be in the office. Some, what's, is there a right mix, Alan? I know, it's, I know it's an impossible question. Ask me in five years. I have companies right now that tell me, Alan, we went completely remote from completely in office. We have the highest engagement rates in the history of the company and the highest uh, earnings we've had in years. Yeah. So the answer is it, like everything, it depends. I think to me, quite frankly, there's a benefit to the social component of being in 100%. an office, okay? But there's also a benefit to not being at 7,000 RPM 
and living and working seven days a week. It's, well, commuting takes years off your life. It's also da- everyone's driving like an idiot, by the way. It's, dang- <laughs> it's dangerous. Absolutely. Right. But there's also different types of workers. If you're young and hungry and want to advance, you should probably be in the office as much as possible. Get to know your boss, whatever this. If you're at the end of your career or just kind of know you're not going to advance, maybe you don't care. But there is an issue. And I know life ain't fair, but there is an issue of fairness. Is there not? And if you're going to advise companies, you say, listen, if somebody's not coming into the office, they're getting a de facto raise. They're not spending on commuting, gas, tires, clothes. Sure. How possibly. Do you ba- again, how do you balance that out with companies? Ah, but maybe they're working more hours, Brian. So maybe they didn't get a raise. Right. So, but here's the deal. You're the young worker. And by the way, they do want to be in the office. By the way, not five days a week. So, so there is a component of workers that want to be in office. There's a component of workers that want to be totally virtual. I call that the barbell. Let's say it's 20% on each mm-hmm. side. The rest want what most people want, which is a hybrid model. So that kid, younger professional, goes to work. If the boss isn't there, what's that person getting? So the company has to architect a scheme where that young worker is in the office at a time when that supervisory employee can actually help them learn. Amazing. Well, and it's hard, and and companies are struggling with it. We're glad, Alan, that you're here to help us make sense of it. The clients, the CEOs that are that are maybe having a cocktail and watching right now. So thank you for also being in person. Brian, thank you. Alan, thank you. All right, coming up. Somehow, some way, the messy descent for SPACs sinks even lower. Herb Greenberg with his hot take coming up. All right, welcome back. A couple of companies on our radar. Wheels up and we work. They both got crushed this week. Shares of the private jet company Wheels Up fell nearly 50%. In the meantime, WeWork also got smoked despite jumping about 10% today. Meme traders likely piling into the stock. Even after the company said it may go out of business, WeWork needs cash badly and is trying to renegotiate leases. We heard kind of a similar story from Wheels Up. It has, says it has substantial doubt it can survive as a company. And according to the Wall Street Journal, they are also now in talks with lenders about some kind of debt restructuring. What do Wheels Up and WeWork have in common? Well, they both began as SPACs, or special purpose acquisition companies. Basically, a publicly traded company created entirely for the purpose of buying or merging with an existing company. For more on SPACs gone wrong, let's go to the guy who was one of the first to sound the alarm. And that is, of course, Herb Greenberg, Empire Financial Research Editor and CNBC contributor, uh, you have a take on on WeWork and or Wheels Up, Herb? Yeah, I, I have a take, uh, Brian, as you might guess. And my take is that the, 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 the best part of the story is that if you go back and you look at what these companies were projecting when they went public, remember back then there was before these things even went through a merger, there was actually um, there was actually a uh, uh, there was actually a. Um, investor presentations that had forecasts. So if you look at a company like WeWork, WeWork was telling you that by now it would have so much liquidity, oh, billions of dollars of liquidity. It would have, it would, it would have revenue, it would have EBITDA, a billions of in EBITDA, positive EBITDA. No, it didn't happen that way. The same with Wheels Up. They were projecting, oh my gosh, Wheels Up was projecting, because looking at this today, Wheels Up was projecting $13 million in revenue. They were, they were projecting, you know, flight sets of, Tens of thousands, meaning the number of flights that were taken, not quite that way. And now you see what happens. And this gets to the bigger issue of these investor presentations and the SEC and and the projections the companies were making. And the SEC specifically said they were looking into this. 
This is back in March of 2022. You still have SPACs that are being filed. And in fact, SPACs are being filed. They're currently about 360, uh-huh. 360 or so active SPACs according to um, a SPAC track. Uh, but man, if you look at the number, Brian, that are negative, the, co- the number that have total returns in the stock market that are negative, I counted, I stopped counting the 300. Okay. That's from the class of 2019 and 2000 to 2020. Yeah, the idea being basically a bunch of people have a check. It's a blank check company. They have money, but no company. They go find one to buy basically and convert it to a, pro- a publicly traded stock. There, there's probably some good ones that have done well. I, I oh, actually yes. can't name one off the top of my head, but, but assuming there were, Herb, I mean, is this a lesson for especially newer investors just it just in it, bottom line, it, avoid all SPACs. No, as a no, rule. You, you can today. I would to, today as a rule, I would avoid all SPACs. But if you see a company that went public via SPAC in 2018, 2017, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad company. That was before all of this frenzy occurred. And there are actually some companies that went public back then. So many fewer of them that actually grew into what they said they would be. Yeah, and I'm sure there's some good ones out there. I'd love to hear from our audience which ones they like or they've, made, they've basically made money in. But to your point, Herb, there's a lot more bad ones that just haven't turned out well. Herb Greenberg, my friend, Absolutely. enjoy. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. All right. Sure. Coming up, like it or not, the future may soon be pulling up to a driveway near you with nobody in the car. San Francisco giving an historic green light to self-driving taxis. Dr. Michio Kaku will join us about the future of this. We've had a glimpse or two of driving of the future. The day may come when the driver becomes totally redundant. Here's my car. And away we go. And by the way, if you're on the radio listening, that was a 1971 clip from the BBC on the future of driving, self-driving cars, 1971, born the same year I was. We now seem to be a little bit closer, 50, whatever it is, years later to that reality. San Francisco state regulators just gave self-driving car companies, Waymo and Cruise, approval to launch paid 24-7 self-driving robo-taxi services. The two companies have already been testing the robo-taxis on San Francisco streets, but now they're going to be able to charge passengers eventually putting them in direct competition with Uber and Lyft. Commission voted that Waymo, owned by Alphabet, can drive up to speeds of 65 miles an hour and can hit the road during inclement weather, while Cruise, which is owned by GM, is only allowed to drive at 35 miles an hour and will not be able to drive in bad weather. Joining us now to talk about this major development is famed futurist Michio Kaku. He is professor of theoretical physics at the City College of New York and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Quantum supremacy and kind of a a gentleman that has an idea of the future and sort of the ethics of things. Dr. Kaku, good to have you back on. Is this a good is this a good turn of events or are self-driving cars benevolent? Well, I think what's happening in San Francisco is going to be repeated around the country. I think a lot of people are watching what's happening in San Francisco and realize that the strongest argument against driverless cars came from the police, emergency crews, firemen. In case of emergencies, sometimes driverless cars get in the way. 
And so there are some minor glitches involved, but I think in the main, one by one, city after city will follow the lead of San Francisco with computer power doubling every 18 months, with uh, all the infrastructure getting in place. I think we're seeing a glimpse of the future. I can see two things on the jobs front. And of course, everybody with two new technologies always predicts doom and gloom, and all we do is, is add jobs. On one hand, I could see the, the driverless cars ultimately replacing humans at Uber, Lyft, and others. But then again, on the other hand, I could see a doctor being, well, maybe that exists on its own plane, and then why do I need to own a car? Well, maybe the, the idea of car ownership goes away. That, that could be. I mean, in the future, you'll simply snap your fingers, and a car will come and greet you, and so it means that the whole layers of redundancy could be eliminated. But also look, lives can be saved using driverless cars as well. Think of how many people die in, in drunken car accidents. Uh, in the future, driverless cars will simply not work if there's alcohol in the air. And so we're talking about saving lives with driverless cars. We're talking about being uh -huh. able to handle emergencies, being able to handle drunk drivers, we're looking at the future. Yeah, it, you know, the, the future, as they say, is coming. <laughs> Michio Kaku, really appreciate it. Thank you, doctor. Have a great weekend. Anytime. All right. Do you know what happened 84 years ago this weekend? Well, one of the most popular movies of all time made its world premiere. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Who can forget the iconic line for, yeah, the Wizard of Oz. Okay, and here's a random but interesting fact. The movie did not premiere in L.A., did not premiere in New York City, did not premiere in Chicago. The Wizard of Oz's soft launch was in Oconomowoc, Wisconsin, near Milwaukee. The reason? Executives at MGM thought the movie would flop. They were not correct. It was the highest grossing movie of 1939. The Wizard of Oz banked nearly $35 million globally at the box office, which would be about $768 million in today's money. See, sometimes even the geniuses, genius at MGM, got it wrong. Akinamawak. And if you bought the O for the vowel, you're a winner on that one. All right, reminder to join us on Monday morning, all day on CNBC, and then last call we're going to be going down to Florida, speaking with Governor Ron DeSantis, talking things that matter to the CBC viewer and listener, the economy, taxes, immigration, and everything else critical to you, our audience, live in Florida. The full interview will air right here on Last Call. All right, where is Jennifer? Where is Jennifer? Is she here? Jennifer Small. All right, we are losing a critical part of our team today. It is our final day for our summer intern, Jennifer Small. It's her last day. She's got to go back to college. How awful could that be? Back to BU, go Terriers, for her senior year. She's been tremendous. And by the way, if you're parents, you did a great job. Jennifer left us all handwritten thank you notes. That, that is a sign of being raised well. Jennifer will miss you and hope to see you maybe next summer. Good luck in your senior year. We'll see you live from Florida on Monday. Take care. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 